0: The stream of time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot the Historian, and this episode, we continue the series on Alexander III of Macedon, known more commonly as Alexander the Great. Just to recap, Alexander succeeded his father Philip as the King of Macedon. He inherited a very well-trained army and used it to pacify the Greeks. Philip was assassinated, but not before starting preparations for an invasion of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, ostensibly to liberate the Greek cities of Asia Minor, but also to further build his own political power. Last episode, we saw Alexander win a crushing victory in northern Asia Minor at the Battle of the Granicus in May 334 BC. In this single battle, Alexander wiped out most of the Persian leadership in Asia Minor. This made Alexander's run through Asia Minor much easier than it would have been had he still had any serious opposition. But just to be clear, it still wasn't a cakewalk. The Greek advisor to the Persians, Memnon of Rhodes, still provided a challenge to Alexander and slowed him down a bit, both on land and on the sea. Memnon had organized a fleet in the Aegean and used it to take some Greek cities at Alexander's strategic rear. Alexander used the next year to retake Asia Minor, and in mid-333, Memnon died, probably of natural causes. A Persian general named Pharnabazus took over, but the death of Memnon seemed to take a lot of steam out of the resistance to Alexander in Asia Minor. In mid-333, Alexander and his army crossed the Taurus mountain range in southern Turkey at the Cilician gates, modern-day Kilikia. The great king of the Persians, Darius III, heard about the defeat at the Granicus and took the threat seriously. He assembled a large army at Babylon. While the ancient sources tell us that Darius's army was between 250,000 and 600,000, those numbers are almost certainly inflated and also included non-combatants and service personnel. Modern historians estimate that Darius's army was probably around 100,000 to Alexander's 40,000 or so at this point. Darius marched this army out to the Syrian plain around the modern-day city of Antakya in Turkey, with the hopes of drawing Alexander out to battle on a large area where he would be able to use the advantage of a larger army. What Darius didn't know was that Alexander had fallen ill after bathing in a river, and because of that had been convalescing in bed, which meant that he was not marching to battle at the time that Darius hoped he would. I want to take a moment to talk about an incident related to Alexander's sickness that we are told of by the ancient historians. Let's jump straight into Arian's account. Arian, as you may remember, is probably the best source on Alexander we have, even if he was writing hundreds of years after Alexander's death. Here's the passage. About this time, Alexander had a bout of sickness. The cause of it, according to Aristobulus's account, was exhaustion. But others say that he plunged into the river Cydnus for his swim. The result was that Alexander was seized by a convulsion, followed by high fever and sleepless nights, All his doctors but one despaired of his life, but Philip of Arcarnania, who attended him and was not only a trusted physician, but a good soldier as well, proposed to give him purgative. Alexander consented to take it, and just as Philip was preparing the draft, Alexander was handed a note from Parmenio. Beware of Philip, the note read. I am informed that he has been bribed by Darius to poison you. Alexander read the warning, and with the paper still in his hand, took the cup of medicine, and then passed the note to Philip. Philip read it, and while he was reading, Alexander swallowed the dose. It was immediately clear that there was nothing wrong with Philip's medicine. There are a couple interesting things to take out of this passage. The first is that, yet again, we have Arian painting Parmenio as a kind of cautious foil, representative of the older generation to Alexander. The second is that this is an indicator of the tremendous loyalty Alexander inspired in his troops, but also the faith that he himself had in his own troops. Now, whether this exact story is true or not, we'll never know, but that's not really the point. The point is that there is enough of these types of stories that pop up in the ancient texts that it's hard to completely ignore the message. Alexander seems to have inspired great loyalty in an army that was also highly trained and cohesive. Darius could not make this claim. His army was put together by levies, conscripts basically. At this point, since most of the western part of the empire was in danger, the levies were mostly taken from the eastern satrapies. These conscripts were there because they had to be. Many of them probably had never even seen the great King Darius himself until the formation of the army. This is important to keep in mind because Darius couldn't keep this very large army fed and happy for long. Alexander didn't seem to be advancing to Darius's position. So, Darius, against the advice of his council, marched north towards Alexander. Alexander received the news that the Persian king was marching, but he was given the incorrect information that Darius was marching towards Damascus. So, Alexander mustered his army to march south towards Damascus. Darius reached the point Alexander had been convalescing, but Alexander was now well south of him. Alexander was hoping for a military engagement with the great king and saw this as an opportunity. Furthermore, Darius's maneuvers had cut Alexander's supply line. In fact, Darius had made it to the camp where Alexander had left the sick and wounded, and had the hands cut off of the unfortunate Greeks and Macedonians that had been waiting behind, thinking they were safe. So Alexander turned his army around, marched north, and the two armies met south of the ancient town of Issus, close to the modern Turkish town of Iskanderun, which is the Turkish version of Alexandria the town Alexander founded in commemoration of, well, we'll get to that in a moment. They met at the river known as the Pinaris. Modern scholars believe this is the modern-day Pious River in southern Turkey. Once again, Alexander and his army faced a Persian army across a river. The way to picture the battlefield is that you have a roughly two-and-a-half-kilometer-wide corridor running north-south. On the east, the battlefield was bounded by mountains. On the west, it was bounded by the coastal waters of the Gulf of Issus. The two armies would be in lines running from east to west along the aforementioned river, which ran east-west from the coast to the mountains. The river would divide the two opposing armies. Darius's forces would be on the north side of the river. Alexander's would be on the south side. Now, two and a half kilometers of space sounds like a lot. But Darius had a very large army, and this would limit his ability to fully deploy such a large army. So the question you might be asking is, why would Darius meet Alexander on a battlefield that gave clear advantage to Alexander and in all likelihood was chosen by Alexander? The most likely answer is that Darius was in an extremely precarious position. By now, Darius was on the edge of Asia Minor, which had been fairly thoroughly established under Alexander's control over the previous year. South of Asia Minor was Darius's Phoenician provinces, which had begun experiencing unrest as Alexander moved into Phoenician territory. And Darius had a huge army that was very difficult to feed and keep together under the best circumstances. Put simply, he had little choice but to engage Alexander wherever he could. On Darius's right flank, he had placed most of his cavalry. In the center of his army were placed professional Greek mercenaries he had hired. You may remember, the Persians had employed Greek mercenaries for a long time by this point. To each side of the Greek mercenaries were Persian soldiers called kardakis. In front of the Persian soldiers were archers, and the idea was that the archers would volley, then move back behind the kardakis to let the soldiers take the battle to melee. The problem with this complicated maneuver was that Darius' army was hastily put together army of levies and mercenaries that had nowhere near the amount of training together that the Macedonian army had. One can imagine that Darius probably had a sinking feeling of horror when he saw Alexander line up his army from marching formation directly into battle formation with perfect coordinated execution. Furthermore, most of Darius's army couldn't do anything because there simply wasn't enough room. His advantage in numbers was completely nullified. For his part, he did try to send a detachment of his forces through the mountains to the east to come around behind Alexander's forces, but Alexander sent his own detachment that easily fended off this attempt at encirclement. Much like the Battle of the Granicus, the Persian cavalry charged and was met by Alexander's Thessalian cavalry, commanded by his general Parmenio. These two pieces were effectively off the board for both sides. Alexander's center was mostly heavy infantry soldiers in a phalanx formation. These soldiers had to cross the Pinarus River and move up the banks to meet Greek mercenaries in the Persian employ. This didn't go so well, and they were initially pushed back with heavy casualties. As at the Granicus, Alexander was on the right flank of his army with the companion cavalry, as well as a group of soldiers known as hypaspists. If the phalanx was effectively a large shield wall with spears, then hypaspists were soldiers trained to fight in closer combat and use tactics. Simply put, they were more agile. Alexander could see the weakness in Darius's formation, and that was in the Kardakis and the archers. Alexander also had a terrain advantage on this side of his army. There was a small hill on this side, which meant that the Persians would have to fire uphill to the advancing Macedonians. Alexander moved the companion cavalry towards the Persians, but at a slow trot. The Persian archers released their volley of arrows too quickly and immediately turned and ran, probably into the Kardakis, causing a huge confusion and a mass of soldiers. It was at this point that Alexander charged. This whole wing of Darius's army folded very quickly. If you've ever seen a visual representation of Alexander, it's probably from the dramatic scene on the mosaic found in Pompeii, in which Alexander is cutting down his soldier as Darius sadly reaches from his chariot to help. The scene depicted in this famous mosaic is this exact point in the Battle of Issus, as Darius, watching from a chariot behind his army, sees his whole left flank completely fold. In fact, Alexander very quickly saw the greater prize of the Persian king and went after him. Darius jumped off his chariot, onto a fast horse, and ran off the battlefield. Now before you condemn Darius for cowardice, understand that the war would have been over had Alexander caught Darius, and Alexander was literally coming directly after him. Fortunately for Darius, Alexander saw that his center was struggling against the Greek mercenaries, and he turned around to come crashing into the rear of the Greek mercenaries. And with this, the battle was effectively finished, an overwhelming victory on Alexander's part. It probably took no more than 15 minutes. Now, let's take a step back. Tactically, this battle played out similarly to the battle at the Granicus, which we covered in the last episode in the series. And while Alexander's victory at the Granicus had also been a strategic victory, as he had taken out most of the Persian high command in Asia Minor, the Battle of Issus had far different ramifications. Let's take a look at them. First, this was the first battle in which Alexander went against the Great King himself. The battle resulted in the Great King fleeing the field for his life. This was a propaganda victory for Alexander. It also proved to everyone, especially to the Great King, that this wasn't some half-hearted effort to take on the Persians like the Greeks had done in the past. Alexander was now clearly an existential threat to the centuries-old Achaemenid Empire, going back to Cyrus the Great in the mid-6th century BC. Second, Alexander had captured Darius's baggage train camp, which was filled with riches. Any money problems he might have had were gone now, as he had captured a huge amount of money. He also captured much of the royal family, including Darius's wife and daughters, who had accompanied the great king. In fact, not too long after this, Darius would make offers to Alexander to marry Darius's daughter and to rule the western half of the Persian Empire. Alexander responded that he practically had all of this anyway. Third, this strategic victory effectively opened up the Levant and Egypt for Alexander. There would still be a bit of opposition in a couple cities, which we'll get into, but like the Battle of the Granicus opened up Asia Minor to Alexander, the Battle of Issus did the same for the Levant and Egypt. Many of Darius's Greek mercenaries managed to escape. Darius took the remainder of his army and fled to Babylon. Alexander did not give chase. A large part of the western half of the Persian Empire was still nominally under Darius's control, the Levant as well as Egypt. Following Darius' east without fully securing the west would have caused a couple problems for Alexander. For one, his supply lines could be cut off while he was on campaign in the east. For another, Alexander had already experienced some problems with Persian fleets in the Mediterranean causing trouble. He knew that this would be a problem until he fully secured the ports, especially the port city of Tyre, Tyre was an important Phoenician town on the Mediterranean in modern day Lebanon. The Phoenicians had been an important culture in the Mediterranean of antiquity, proving to be skilled traders, explorers and colonizers. In fact, the alphabet as we know it probably got its start in Phoenician culture and was later borrowed by the Greeks. A classic example of a Phoenician colony would be none other than Carthage, the city known for its clashes with Rome. The Phoenicians were not a state, but rather a culture. But if there was a home city of the Phoenicians, it would be Tyre, especially as Tyre had managed to maintain some level of autonomy through the centuries, even as areas around it had been subjugated by various powers such as the Babylonians and the Persians. Tyre as a city was split between an unprotected portion on the mainland and the rest behind walls on a small island about a kilometer off the mainland portion. Darius had hoped that because of this defensive situation, Tyre would hold out for a while, long enough for Darius to build support and an army again. When Alexander arrived, he quickly took the mostly abandoned, by now, mainland portion of the city and attempted to negotiate with the Tyrians hold up on the fortified island. He made the offer to make sacrifices in the temple to the Tyrian god Melkart. Alexander had made the case that Melkart was a Tyrian version of Heracles, who Alexander heavily identified with. Now, the two gods did have distinct origins, but this process of what was called syncretization was not uncommon in the ancient period. The idea was that one god from your culture might be sort of the same version of another god from another culture, which, again, historically might have different roots, but the two cultures could sort of call it the same god. So in this case, the Greek god Heracles was syncretized with the Tyrian god Melkart. Anyway, this didn't seem to convince the Tyrians, as they were very well aware that allowing Alexander in to make these sacrifices would effectively make him king of the city. The attempts at negotiation were ceased when the Tyrians killed Alexander's negotiators and threw them over the walls, claiming that they would allow neither Macedonian nor Persian in, again attempting to retain the semblance of autonomy that they had held for centuries. Alexander wasn't having it and set to work. He didn't have access to a fleet at this point, which would make blocking the city off from help even more difficult, much less actually invading. However, the sea between the island and the mainland was not deep. In fact, modern-day Tyre is effectively a peninsula. Alexander had a causeway built by filling in much of the sea between the island with dirt and stone, a causeway that's still there today over 2,300 years later. The Tyrians still bravely fought back and managed to burn some of the artillery that the Macedonians had rolled along the causeway. This kind of fighting and counterfighting went on for months. Eventually, Alexander's fleet arrived, and with the addition of ships, he was able to effectively surround and completely cut Tyre off. The walls were finally breached, and the city was quickly taken by the Macedonian forces. And here we are reminded that Alexander was as brutal as he was brilliant. 8,000 civilians were massacred, mostly of the lower class. 30,000 were sold into slavery. The whole siege lasted from January 332 to July 332, much quicker than Darius had hoped. Alexander moved on to Egypt. Except for the city of Gaza, who attempted some resistance, Alexander met little opposition on his way to and in Egypt. Not only did Egypt not oppose Alexander, but it actually welcomed him as a liberator. Now, this may sound a bit arbitrary, but let's remember that like the Ionian Greeks in Asia Minor, Egypt had never been fully comfortable with Persian rule and had attempted several revolts, including some with help from the Greeks. Alexander spent some time here consolidating his rule, but there are two important things that happened while he was in Egypt that we need to talk about. The first is that he founded, or at least refounded, the city of Alexandria. If you remember from previous episodes, Alexander founded many Alexandrias throughout his travels, but undoubtedly the most important one was the Alexandria in Egypt. You may remember it from being the home of the famous Library of Alexandria that burned down, possibly around the time of Julius Caesar. But the Alexandria in Egypt would go on to become a key city in antiquity, even becoming an important grain producer for the later Roman Empire. The second thing that happened is that Alexander would visit a famous oracle in the area, the Oracle of the Siwa Oasis located in the desert of Libya. Now, you may remember from the last episode that Alexander had a tendency to associate himself with legends and even hint at divinity. From his mother, he claimed to be descended of the Greek hero from the Iliad, Achilles. Last episode, he cut the Gordian knot, fulfilling a prophecy that whoever broke the knot would be the ruler of Asia. And in this episode, we already saw him try to sacrifice to Hercules Melkart at the shrine in Tyre. Well, if Alexander was questioning his own divinity when he went to the oracle, the visit to the oracle definitely put an end to his questioning. The oracle told Alexander that he was the son of God Amun, who the Greeks recognized as Zeus. Now, on the one hand, we can never truly understand what is on another person's mind, especially someone who lived over 2,000 years ago. On the other, it sure seems like Alexander took this message to heart and believed that he was a god. As I've hinted at, This was an idea that seemed to be slowly building since he was a child. Alexander's mother was always behind the idea of his divinity, and it should be noted that even while he was on campaign, he kept a constant correspondence with her. But as I said, any doubts he had before visiting the Oracle at Sea were probably dispelled there. His mother confirmed, and I use that word with air quotes, that his true father was actually Zeus and not Philip. This would eventually become a problem with his soldiers, which we'll get into in a later episode. In 331 BC, two years after the Battle of Issus, Alexander left Egypt to challenge the great king in Mesopotamia. What resulted was one of the most exceptional battles in Western history, the Battle of Gagamela. But for that story, dear listeners, I'm afraid you'll have to wait for the next episode. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.